When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, folks. You're all very welcome back to the Salix O podcast. It's Friday and the weekend's upon us and the pubs are opening here in dear old Ireland on Monday. My guest on the show today will be singer-songwriter Declan McLaughlin from Derry's Bogside. And folks, don't forget, none of our content is behind a paywall or Patreon. So if you want to support us, you can do so by becoming a member, buying some of our merch, subscribing or donating for the price of a point. And you can do all that by visiting CelticFanzine.com. And if you would like to sponsor us, and we'd like to thank all our sponsors who have come on board over the past year, Hard to believe it's a first episode of a new year because we start on the 29th of May 2020. So don't forget, if you want to sponsor us, you're a Celtic minded business or a Celtic supporters club or just a rich Celtic fan who thinks what we're doing is absolutely great, get in contact with us. You can get in contact with us through the website at celticfanzine.com by emailing us at info at celticfanzine.com and you can also contact us through social media where you'll find us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and the old timer Facebook. Check out the website for all daily news and articles and please download the app. It costs nothing, it's free and you'll have access to everything we do, articles, podcasts, video content, info on events and we do have info on an upcoming event, thank God. Delighted to announce that we'll be back on stage down in the Rue Glen Hotel as guests of the Port Larg CSC on November the 13th. So we're really looking forward to that. It's International Weekend, I believe, and I'll be joined on stage that night by Hun Scalper himself, Alan Thompson, and the Holy Goalie, John Fallon. And the entertainment looks great for that night. Fergus Masatic Storm will be on stage, and so will Ema Glacken. So really, really looking forward to that. There's still tickets available. I think the hotel is booked out, but there are other hotels in the area. I know tickets are going fast, so I will put all the information on that event in the podcast description. And there's also an advert on our homepage on the website if you want to check that out. 
It's been a mad, mad busy week. Issue 115 landed on the desk on Tuesday from the printers. So we've been busy getting that into envelopes, getting it out to everybody who bought a copy and also out to our subscribers. And don't forget, folks, if you do subscribe, we'll throw in a free T-shirt. And thanks again to everyone for the support. On our T-shirts, we've got two new designs coming in the next two weeks. We've also got some new merch and we've a lovely new booker hat to keep the sun off your face in the summer. As I said, we're really busy with the fanzine, but the YouTube channel has kicked off really well this week. I was saying last week that it was a kind of slow grower, but not anymore. We've had a lot of interest in it this week. We put out a good few talks from the terraces. At a time, we thought we'd be taking it easy, having a quiet time after the season we just witnessed. But we had Matt McGlone from the Alternative View joining us. We had Eddie Toner former secretary of the Celtic Supporters Association joining us to talk about the state of play at Celtic at the moment and we'll also have uh, David and Jeanette join us from the Celtic Trust that went out today and we had Dan Orloist and I hope I pronounced that correctly who writes for the Japan Times and he brought us up to speed on the front runner for the manager's job at Celtic Ange as he's become known because we can't pronounce the second name but I'll give it a go Ange Pasta Cold Glue I think, is the one that everyone's talking about at the moment. Who knows, but if you want to kind of get an insight into Ange, well then Dan's your man, and he'll bring it up to date on what he's won in Japan and where he brought the team from and where they are now and the style of football he plays. So it's very interesting. If you haven't listened to that, check it out. And everything we put on YouTube, don't worry, if you prefer to listen to your podcasts and audio, we'll stick them out on the podcast as well which is available across all platforms. But please, if you're on the YouTube channel, because there's been thousands on it this week, just hit that subscribe button, please. Would really appreciate that. And also on the YouTube channel, we have a kind of a break away from the day-to-day, because it is a little depressing at the moment, being a Celtic fan. But the Grand Old History podcast is out with David Potter, both on the YouTube channel and on the podcast. And we discussed Celtic cult heroes, and he's going to be back next week, and he's well, maybe going to do the history of the Celtic managers as we are speaking about them at the moment. And David will probably be the only thing we do next week because we are going to take a little break. There'll be no show next Friday, and there'll be no show the following Friday because I'm going on a little holiday. And Roland's forty, and I'm sure he's going to be out celebrating as well. Yes, I am. Folks, we have so many comments this week and we've been so busy we hadn't even time to go through them or reply to them. So really sorry about that, but we will get back to the comments in the next episode. I like so many folks, a lot of people that were working from home are starting to get back to work now and back into social contact with people. But over the past, I suppose, 14 or 15 months, I just want to thank everyone that has supported us. Richie, who's based in Scotland, our graphic designer. Thanks, Richie. Of course, Roland here in the studio. Daniel, who's been walking from home on all our video content. Erin over in Scotland, who's been attending press conferences for us and doing some stuff on our Instagram account. And, and then, of course, the, every single contributor to the fanzine, all our writers and all the people who contribute to articles on the website. Can't thank you enough, really, because it's been such a strange, strange time without seeing any of you. I'm looking forward to really getting 
out and about from next week and seeing a few people. But I also want to give a shout out to the mill where we've been based. First class, what they've done for us because of COVID, they set us up in a separate room so that me and Ronan wouldn't have to see each other day in, day out. But we set up a little studio and they've been great with equipment and helping us out. And the big news is that in October, we'll be moving into our own podcast studio here at the mill. Purpose built podcast studio where we'll be able to get, I suppose, guests to come to us rather than us having to go to them. So we're really looking forward to that. And after, I suppose, a, a tough year or so, it's going to be great to get back and get people coming to see us here as well. So thank you very much. Well, Roland had only switched the power button off on the mixing desk when we got the phone call from Sharon at Celtic to tell us that Eddie Howe would not be the manager. So he has now become Eddie Who after 10 weeks of negotiations. As I said earlier there, Dan, the man of the Japan Times, well, he's been filling us in on Angie. And the latest news, as, as we say here recording, is Celtic have, are seeking a UEFA exemption for him to be, I suppose, allowed coach in um, Europe because he doesn't have the badges, which is a lot of bollocks, really, when you think of the experience he has, 25 years, and he has won a lot. And if you listen to the podcast with Dan, he'll fill you in. And I've contacted Celtic. I've said, look, can you let us know who's in charge of football matters as we prepare for pre-season, Champions League qualifiers, and the league? Because... I'm sure this is, even if Angie is going to be the manager, I'm sure this is going to take a long time. It's not going to happen overnight for UEFA to go through this. I'm sure there's paperwork and blah, blah, blah. So hopefully Peter Lawwell can give a, a nudge and a wink to his friends in UEFA and get this over the line because it's we, we, need, we need stability at the club. But I've had nothing back from the club officially on who is in charge of football matters. Is it someone wearing a suit or is it the tracksuits? With John Kennedy, his assistants, are they planning ahead? Because no Nick Hammond, no Neil Lennon like last year to plan. So, well, we know the plans didn't go too well during the year, but at least we had a plan in place. We have been invited to press conferences. We have been invited to the women's games. And we've also got an email to say that there's a new jersey, which doesn't really interest me, but it will some people. But it's not really the kind of information we want coming out of the PR department at Celtic. We need confirmation of who is in charge at the moment of footballing matters. But it's not all doom and gloom. The Celtic women's team, if they win on Sunday, they'll be qualified for the Champions League for the first time. So well done, girls, and well done to Fran Alonso. And hopefully you'll get over the line on Sunday. And Erin Boyle will be at the game for us and she'll do a little report and a few bits and pieces for social media for us. And she also attended the pre-match press conference and here's how she got on. Hi, Caitlin. Erin uh, Boyle, more than 90 minutes. You're looking well in that jersey. It suits you. Thank you so much. Thank you. A massive three points at Cape Park last weekend and on the brink of history. If you make it to the Champions League, what would that mean to you as a player and how has it impacted the atmosphere at training? Oh, it would it would mean the world. Um, like I said before, there's no bigger competition and, and to have made it when people said we wouldn't is just a credit to ourselves and this team. But until then we can't get excited or can't allow our emotions to be affected by the thought of that happening so we just stay focused on on Sunday. How has it impacted the atmosphere at training how, how are you feeling on on the brink of history? 
you know, we just keep the same momentum and the same philosophy and stick to what we've been doing um, every game, every training session, which is to just turn up, do our best for each other, for our coaching staff, for, for the badge. And we just keep the same momentum and the same habitual routines. Um, and then we don't, we don't look up. We keep our eyes down, keep our heads down um, and just focus on what we can do. And, and like I said, if Sunday, whatever happens Sunday, we'll be happy and proud of each other. Thanks very much and good luck for the weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Cheers. Hi, Fran. Erin Boyle, More Than 90 Minutes. How are you doing? Hi, Erin. I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm very well. Thank you very much. Uh, just one from me. A stunning double-figure scoreline at K-Park last weekend. How does coming off such a big win like that prepare you and fire the girls up for the next fixture? And in this case, one game away from that historical Champions League spot, it must give you It must give you a real boost. Yeah, it was. At the beginning of the game, to be fair, it was similar that I'm telling you now. I, I, was, telling, I was telling the girls... Uh, we told three points. We need the three points. We already we did it. We failed to take to take three points against them last time we played in here. If we think about Champions League, about league or whatever, our focus is not is not gonna be where we want it to be. So we focus on 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 be aggressive and, and try to be obviously we were I think we were clinical where where we have to be, although both of their goalkeepers they have a great performance. But you know, obviously when we went to half time five nil, then is the first time when we say at half time I said to the guys, look. There is a difference of four goals against Glasgow City. You know, what we, what do you want to do? And then obviously everyone saw, you know, let's let's try to and then we put the the scenario where, you know, we were losing for nil and we have to try to win the game. And that's why when we scored a goal, you know, you saw players taking the ball from the back of the net and sprinting to put it in the uh, in the halfway line. And it, it wasn't anything to do with being disrespectful towards the opponent, not at all. It was to do with, you know, uh, obviously we want to be in, in the best position to put pressure uh, to the team that is ahead of us, and, and you know, obviously, uh, I think as a as a Celtic uh, player or as a Celtic member of 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 the staff, you always have to do your very best, and you always have to be ambitious and try to try to yeah, try to when you score a goal, try to um, fight to try to score the next one. So, but yeah, after the game, delighted, delighted that the team that that we failed to win last time we played there, we we scored ten nil when it mattered the most, when it mattered the most, because that put us in a in a very good uh, position uh, this week and also, you know, that adds extra pressure to, to, to the other teams. Absolutely. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure and all the best for Sunday. We're all rooting you on. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Declan McLaughlin is a singer-songwriter from Derry, a resident of the Bogside. Declan has toured the world from Libya to Luton, and from his hometown of Derry throughout Ireland and all around the States when he was living over there for a good number of years and touring with his bands. Hi Declan, you're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. It's been a difficult year for those of us who work in the event, music and arts business with COVID-19 shutting down gigs and events for over a year now. But with the vaccine now in play, are you optimistic about getting back gigging soon? Yes. Uh Aye, I hope, like, I think, like everybody, we, we want this thing to kind of pass, or we, we need to get past it, you know, physically, mentally, economically, socially, and just to kind of get some kind of, like, you know, social contact again, back with people. Uh, I hope it's, like, a, the music industry, or the entertainment industry, I think, has taken a pretty bad, 
but as far as writing and stuff like that goes, I have kept, you know, I have just kept kept writing, kept recording. Kind of give me a bit of space where I don't have to worry about going out the. See, I have a wee job, so I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not feeding myself through my music. Thank God, or I'd, be, I'd be a lot funner. <laughs> You'd be hungry. Oh, <laughs> uh, so I, so I'm trying to use the time constructively. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I walk in the events game and on a DJ as well. And I even when we get back, you know, okay, you might get a couple of gigs DJing, but if like for us to run an event, like we have to plan it, we have to book it. The venue has to give us a guarantee. We have to pay the venue. Then we have to get our artist, be it for a spoken word or a musical gig or, yeah. or a festival or whatever we're doing. So, like you're talking twelve months down the road, and and that's the kind of that's the kind of scary thing. But I agree with you about what you're saying you could get you could you could write and up until this I was you know getting the fans in out once a month, doing some live stuff, doing a, doing a bit was keeping the website going. But since the lockdown, I've I've nothing else to do. Only the website. We started the podcast. We started a YouTube channel, and it's been very positive. And I have like it's positive for the mind acting because uh, I think I would have struggled without having something to do because we're not meant to be you know locked down. Well. Well, physical creatures, well, creatures who like to meet, and you know, I, I, I love, I love a point, but I love the social aspect of the pub. You know, yes, I never would have been really someone to sit at home and drink, and and but on a Saturday night, I go to the office exactly. and I get me a couple of cans, and I have a Facebook <laughs> disco with myself. It's not so. I'm not into, I'm not into watching box sets and box sets, and it's just getting out. I'm missing the football shocking as well. So for you, as as a as a gig and musician, you've you've brought three albums out in, in this time, Declan, uh, and in, in a short space of time, when you think of it, three albums come out. But when I had Paul Heaton on the podcast, you know, Paul brought an album out, but he hasn't toured it yet. So you now have yeah. three albums to tour. How is that going to work? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be buzzing. Uh, well, the, the reason why that came about was I had an album that I had recorded just three last year which was the path of most resistance uh, and I put that out when when this when the fucking pandemic hit so I was kind of sitting and I had the time that I, I would have allocated for you know going out to tour and going out to push the record and I would usually go to the States for maybe two months uh, all of that time and then had free so what I started doing was looking at the stuff that I had recorded before that I had never ever put out or I had only ever you know that some of the stuff would be on demos and stuff like that. So I got some of it remastered, remixed, and I got a wee bit, I got a couple of pounds off the Arts Council here. So I decided I would put out those two albums. It's not like I recorded them last week. Now. They were recorded over the last probably five years. But I had them sitting there and they were doing nothing. So I thought, right, here's, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. So I, I thought I'll put them out, you know, and it's, I'm quite happy with it. Like, they don't go, they have had them on sale here locally. We a couple of shops in there just to give them a kind of chance, and then now this weekend they're going to be out uh, on you'll be able to buy them on the, the on their web, and uh, they'll be shipped all over the world. Hopefully, yeah, we we will put a link on to the uh, podcast description. So if, if you watch, or if you're listening, just click in, and all the details will be there. Now you mentioned that you know you were kept busy with the albums, and thank you very much for the path of most resistance. We we played a couple of songs on the podcast and they've been very very well received um, and uh, I hope we've introduced a few listeners to your music and they're starting to say nice things about you but 
Christy Moore and Damien Dempsey, you know, kind of tweeted and would be well known to all our listeners. And they've been very uh, positive about, about your music and you supported uh, Damien in Vicar Street before the lockdown. So tell us a little about that release. Uh, you said you can't go out on the road to promote it, but you will be able to know. See the other two albums, right? Give, tell us a little bit about that. I still think that's the new album, but the two albums that you've just yes. released, some, some of that stuff you're saying is five years ago. So yes. is it still relative now? Or, or did, were you listening going, oh, like, how does that work? Well, maybe the, I'll kind of give you a, a rundown. I don't know, maybe if people know something about the kind of musical background. My father was a musician. He played the kind of show bands. He was in a band called Leroy Brown. And my mother was a singer. So I kind of grew up in a working class house where my father performing was the main source of income in the house. We were working class. Uh, so I kind of grew up, we surrounded with music. And then as a teenager, started playing in bands. And then maybe around me kind of lit things. Like after the hunger strikes, I started to realise that there was stuff going on around me that I, you know, like I was in my early teens then. Uh, and by about 1985, 1986, things here had deteriorated that bad. And I was kind of surrounded with it. And what happened was my music, as I was kind of learning and playing music, I started writing about the stuff that was going on around me. So I became involved with a fella called Paddy Nash and we started a band called The Screaming Bum Lads. Would have been the lit, lit 80s we started playing. But we just started writing about the stuff that was going on around us at, at the time. And although we kind of knew all the kind of rebel songs and all that kind of stuff, the, the kind of rebel songs that we, we knew, they didn't. It was Boys the Old Brigade and you know, the kind of the Wolf Tones and all that stuff. So we started writing, like I say, about fucking glue snuffing or the army raiding your house and stuff like that. And the reaction there was kind of positive because I think for a lot of other people growing up here in the town, we were singing about stuff that they could relate to as well, you know, about the dole and box clerks and like a song called Fine Day that people kind of say it's a, the unofficial anthem of the town, but it's about taking drugs and signing on. Uh, so then after the, 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 the scream of Ban Lads kind of by the 90s, you know, things had changed. Musically, we did a lot better. The Screaming Bun Lads, you know, for people who understand or out of this community would understand the kind of reference to the Bun Lads, but outside of, outside of Derry and parts of Belfast, people wouldn't have got it. So we kind of changed the lineup a wee bit and changed, not, we didn't change the material. The material was still the same. We were still singing about what was going on, but we had a fella from Belfast called Tomas McShan joined us, he was a trumpet player, and we kind of formed the whole Tribe Sings, and we got a, a number of kind of offers of record deals and stuff like that in the States, and we decided to go over there, because Guinness were using one of our songs in an ad, so we went over and spent the guts of maybe four years touring around America, uh, and then I think because of the internet, because of, like we were there when 9-11 happened, we kind of decided it was time, we, you know, we were kind of tired at that point you know so we come back home and I just kind of kept on playing and recording stuff and as I bought more equipment like what I always done with the money that I was making out of the, the music I always tried to reinvest it back by buying equipment and trying to get better equipment and so what I've been doing is over the years I've been buying wee bits and pieces of recording and I've kind of set up a wee studio in the house and like I say over the last 10 years you know with a lot of help from other people I've been able to record these albums and pit them out kind of cheap and 
you know, I'm not worried about a record label or anything like that. I just do it on my own time. And so that's how you kind of got to this point. Right, so the last, sorry, uh, to, to answer your question, the, the two albums that I have just put out, uh, one of them is called Breakneck Steps, which people from the water side here in Derry, I know there's a set of, uh, you know Derry, Derry's all hulls, and there's a set of steps that run from God Mosquito down to the end of the bridge, and that's what they were called, the Breakneck Steps. So I kind of, uh, I spent a lot of my teenage years around that part of the town. So I kind of named the album after that. And then the other album is called No Big Deal, which was the first album I kind of recorded after the whole tribe sings. And happened to be a lot rockier. Uh, people would know Rory O'Doherty from Kelly's Main. He plays bass on it. Uh, and my sister's Tina sings on it. And there's a lot, load of other local musicians. Happened to be a lot more rocky, where the breakneck steps one would be kind of soul dancey stuff. But the, the, the path of no, or the most resist the path of most resistance and the high flats album, they're very country because I think I've kind of come back round listening listening to the music that you know when I was a teenager growing up, the stuff that my ma and dad would have been, you know, like Wally Nelson, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, all that kind of stuff. That that's the stuff as a teenager that I was I mean, I was listening to Motorhead and the Sex Pistols and Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath. And they, I, I remember my dad trying to get me to listen to a Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young album. And he going, fucking happy rubbish. I'm not listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying to me at the time, you don't get it, but you will. At some point, you'll realise how good this album was. So I've kind of come full circle to back playing kind of country <laughs> happy music <laughs> but that's what we all do because you know I grew up I was massive in the sky like in my house my oldest brother was a boot boy so there was kind of glam rock music there which you know Slade and stuff like that the next the next Brandy Young was the next brother was a punk who got into rockabilly so I had everything from Stiff Little Fingers the Undertones you know a local band to you right up to the Stray Cats and then the next brother came along and he was, he was in the mud. So we had the jam and I had Secret Affair and Dexter's Midnight Runners. I came along and it was two-tone and madness and that. But they all moved to London and my eldest brother got married. So I was left in a house with all these records, which, which I still have. So, you know, when I was getting bored playing my, my ska stuff and I was getting a little older and, and ska was kind of, the bands were moving on, you know, they were breaking up or they were moving to a different sound. So I was going backwards and, you know, when you go backwards, you, I think I discovered Jamaican ska and reggae and everything. But it does go full circle because my mother used to like Patsy Cline. I love listening to Patsy Cline. And I think when you get older, you leave your tribe as you get older and you become more aware of what your father says about Crosby, Stills and Nash. And, you, know, you, you start, like, my, my son's starting to produce dance music now. And a couple of years ago, if I even suggested a DJ to listen to, you know, like Tim Deluxe is a friend of Baz's, my best mate. And Tim's, you know, a huge producer now and headline festivals around the world. And Fatboy Slim uses his, you know, his stuff. And he opened up his gig and that famous gig on Brighton Beach with one of Tim's tunes. Now, if I had to said to my son two years ago, oh, why don't you listen to Tim Deluxe? He would have laughed at me. But now he's wanting me to introduce him to Tim Deluxe. You know, and until, as you get older, you do, your music gets broader. And I wouldn't have listened to much, um, I suppose, rebel music or, or trad music when, when when I was when I was younger. I was probably 
probably late 20s when I really started to listen. Now, okay, I'd be at gigs and that, but wow. probably and I started maybe listening deeper. And that was probably the first band to get me into really listening to that kind of music was the Blarney Pilgrims and the Glasgow sound. It wasn't, it wasn't the Irish sound because the Glasgow sound was more punky. There was bass, there was drums. Yeah. And that kind of, you know, and it kind of had, it was like, it was trad music or Kaylee music with balls, you know? Yes, you know, yes. because previous to that, like the best thing that I know I'd ever come out of Irish music for me was the Pogues. Yeah. Now I had bands like the Blarney Pilgrims and Shabine and Era Oak and, you know, and I didn't have to, I didn't have to go far. If I got, went to a Celtic game, I could go into a pub and see these bands. I didn't have to queue up, but, you know, you could see them before a game or after a game, and that made a big difference. And I remember when they started to come, as you, you know, we spoke earlier off about them coming into Derry. I remember them coming into Dublin and that, and it was it was refreshing. But then, of course, what do you do? You actually go back to who wrote these songs, and and then I was digging out old barley corn records belong to me, man. You know, so like it does it does go full circle. But I just want to stay on the part of no resistance because it did say there was, you know, a country feel for that's exactly what I got off of country vibes, American feel. And they, did that come from your influences in America? You know, and did America change your songwriting? Uh no, I think growing up as a kid, uh, you know, it was Starsky and Hutch. You know, America was the kind of, you know what I mean? I like, I grew up in a place called New Baldwin's. It was a housing estate, a loyalist housing estate just outside of Derry. So you kind of got lost in a TV and American TV was what we were getting at the time, you know? So I always kind of, I probably romanticised about it, but I've always, always wanted to go. I've always wanted to see it. Uh, and I think because the music that I've always listened to has probably been 90% it probably has been American music. But as well as that too, that kind of music is, is fairly easy to play. You know, you don't need to be fucking wing me Manstein or you don't have to be doing any of that there. And I love the fact that something can be struck back. You know, what you're trying to, I always think what you're trying to do with a good song is it's, you're trying to project an emotion as far as it can go. You know, that it touches other people. That you can write about something that is very local but you can make it international, that you can make it universal, you know, because that, that's what I try to do. Although the, a lot of them songs that I write would be very much, you know, American country. What I'm I, I, a lot of it is I'm trying to write about dairy. I'm trying to put some kind of connection to what to what I'm, I have here. You know? Yeah, no, no. When you say you know dairy, when you peel back the lyrics, they're kind of universal because everywhere has, I suppose. You sing about drink, you sing about drugs, you sing about yes. what's going on around you, as you said earlier. But you can really, you can really see it in in, in that um, album, and in, in the previous album, we played out one of the songs, uh, "Freedom's Not a T-shirt," which has become kind of it was a favourite around the office here because Roland's a musician, and I came in one day and I can hear him. I go, oh. and when he put the when he when you sent him the MP3 and you put it on the end of the podcast, he, he was. It was kind of playing it, playing along with him, you know. And like we play out with a song every week, and generally he doesn't. You know, he, he when we played out with Billy Bragg, he, he said, "Oh, I'm going to learn that as well," you know. Um, but when I go onto YouTube to look at that, um, that's that song, and because it's 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 on my Facebook Saturday Night Disco, which I which I share some some Saturday nights, <laughs> but. Um, you do hang in the lockdown for company. 
but like, like it's just well, where does it is description it just says you know freedom's not a t-shirt and you kind of say it's for people wearing Shea Shavara t-shirts that are made yes. in sweatshops and it really got me thinking and just just tell us a little about that song will you uh, well the song kind of come out of I don't know people of a certain age might remember this is a load of years ago and and there there was one of those fucking you know shabbly made factories you know and some kind of shanty town and the fucking factory had collapsed and there was hundreds of women fucking just killed, you know, because of, you know, bad building regulation and no, no health and safety and all that. And I remember watching it and going, that was my mother 30 years ago, you know, working on the shirt factories here in Derry, you know, with the same, you know, that's, that's, you know, for, for certain people, life doesn't move on. You know, we, we in the West, we love off the backs of these people in the poor countries, you know. And like I say, 30 years before, it was my ma that was in a, you know, a sweatshop here in Derry, putting shirts together for Wranglers or for Lee or for those jeans factories and stuff like that. But And what they had done was that level of poverty had just moved to another country. And I thought to myself, here we are, we're wearing, you know, we want the best of fucking cheap clothes and we call ourselves revolutionaries and, you know, so it's a wee bit about that and about it as about the kind of people that see protest, you know, there's more to politics than just protest. You know, there's, you know, fucking people dying at borders. There's, you know, just because you march around the town with a placard, you know, doesn't get you off the hook for what needs to be to be done. So it's just I, I, about accountability and politics and stuff like that. You know, so. you are obviously, you are obviously <laughs> angry with you know. this time of morning. <laughs> No, we, we won't put it out till five o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you're obviously angry at that time, and and that takes me that takes me back to Derry because when I think of Derry, we think of the famous wall, we think of Martin McGuinness, we think of the undertones, we think of the troubles or the war or the conflict or what you know whatever people we we think about you know Bloody Sunday. It's it's there's so much goes round yes. your head when you think about Derry. And you were born there in 1969. And as I said, you know, a city at war. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up in the sea and, you know, when you first became aware that you weren't living in a normal society? Uh, right, well, to kind of give you, again, my, my mother and fa- my, my father was from Craigan and my mother was from Ardmore, which is just outside of the city, which, you know, then was the country. My ma didn't really want to move under because when I was born, it was just exactly at the start of the troubles. My dad used to joke, he used to call me a barbed wire baby because uh, all the kids that were born in 1969, that was a kind of term for us, barbed wire babies. And uh, so we ended up moving out to a place. There was a number of these kind of, because of the housing issues, a number of kind of these uh, like housing projects were built out around the ages of Derry. There was new buildings, Strathfoil, Lettershan, Dunny, and what they were doing was they were trying to alleviate the housing problem in the city. So they were moving kind of Catholics out into these predominantly Protestant areas. They were mixing the housing estates, like, you know, 60% Protestant, 40% Catholic, just so that they could try and play with the numbers again. It was a form of gerrymandering. So we ended up living in New Buildings, which was a huge, like, some of you may know of it. It was a, a large Protestant housing estate. But... For a, a large part of it, it was cool, you know what I mean? Through the 70s and stuff, I didn't really understand. You know, I was just a kid. But I remember the whole thing about religion becoming more and more, you know, people saying, you know, all their kids that are when you're around, you know, talking about, you know, me being a Catholic and 
me trying to figure out what what's what was the difference. But then as we got to the kind of the early eighties, the first hunger strike, then the second hunger strike, then like I was thirteen, fourteen, and at that age you kind of realised because the tension at that point had got the boiling point because like I say we were living in a predominantly housing predominantly loyalist housing estate. So I would have been sent to Craigan up to me and Anne's to to stay when there was when there was trouble. So it was it was safer in the heart of Craigan than it was in New Bolton's. So just kind of you see the army, the helicopter because I grew up surrounded with helicopters and soldiers stopping cars, it became so normal. And then by the time I got to secondary school, like Paul Waters was a friend of mine, he was killed. My aunt was killed. I had a cousin, John Stars, he was killed. So it was just kind of like normal stuff that you had you had the relatives in jail or so it was only when I you know, when I became older that I realized how abnormal all of that was. But I suppose in the middle of it all, it kind of politicized you and you know, you were seeing it up close that, you know, the the army, the helicopters, the injustices that was going on, people were being killed in a regular basis, you know, people with inside of this community. We knew that the, the, the police and the paramilitaries were working together to, to kill people. But when he says that outside of this community, people looked at you like if you were you know, a conspiracy theorist or something like that, you know, we knew it was going on. So that growing up kind of became involved in the movement and the kind of 90s, late 80s, 90s, just selling newspapers, collecting PDF. And then the kind of Bloody Sunday Justice campaign began and I kind of got tour under that. So I've kind of been part of the Republican community in Derry since like a late teen, since I was a teenager. But like I said, then in 85, when we, we had the move out of New Baldwin's because of the, the Anglo-Irish agreement was signed and things got bad again. So I moved from New Baldwin's on the, the bog side and I've been here since. And did you move with your family? Yes, I, we had to move out things, like I say. Like at that point, I wasn't, I knew that there was stuff happening, but we kind of loved outside of the town. I didn't really understand what was going on. And then we they started targeting, you know, the, the few Catholic families that were in that area. I went on all over the north. Uh, Catholic families were being attacked. Uh, and uh, I'm not too sure if it happened the other way around because I don't think the Catholic population was that, cared that much about it. But we ended up having to move. The house was attacked a number of times. And I think at the time it was one of the biggest civilian population movements since the Second World War. Uh, because it happened right across the north. And did it make you feel better? Uh, no, not better. Because the growing up in New Buildings, I you know, our neighbours were Protestants, working class, and you know, I, I seen they weren't sectarian, they didn't care, they treated me and my family just like anybody else. So for me to kind of move under a town and say that I hated Protestants or I would think I couldn't, you know, my neighbor, the, the woman who lived next door to us was a woman called Mrs. Piper and she was Church of Ireland and, you know, she would give God a conscience. She was that good a, a woman, you know, so I couldn't put my hand on my heart and say that it does like anybody because of their religion. You know, I'm not, not that fussed in any religion, but I'm not going to hit anybody because of their religion. Uh, I, but I've seen it for, you know, like I say, at that stage when I became politicised, he kind of realised that this was, you know, that there was more to it than just Catholics and Protestants squabbling over the head of a piece of land, but it had to do with British involvement in Ireland and how long that had been going on. And, you know, the fact that we're at a point where we're arguing we, we're nibbers over the head of the Irish language or street signs, uh, it shows you how 
how twisted that they have left us that we're fighting with one another when we should be looking at you know the health service or you know unifying the island the education of our young people that's the stuff that we should be out fucking marching about what would you say to those old neighbours and, and those that pick the people from a different community or a different um, I'm, I'm not going to say religion but you know a different branch of of, of um, I suppose the working class family because at the end of the day they need housing they need jobs they need education the same as you know it, you know you don't get it because of, of a certain religion but when I look in from the outside. I see Catholics in the Northern Nationalists, you know, getting educated, you know, education, education, education. And when I hear people like Billy Hutchinson talking about the community he represents, it's, you know, he's saying, oh, they've been left behind and they haven't been. But it is, the key to it all is education. So, and, and now we have Edmund Poots, and I don't want this podcast to become a political podcast, but we now have Edmund Poots who, who could put that community decades behind. Not years, decades, as the you know, as the face of of, of unionism up there now. When like I'd be looking, if I was a youth up there, and I couldn't get a job, or I or my family couldn't get housing, he would be the, the type of person I would be looking towards for leadership. But I don't see that. Whereas I do see the majority of people up there buying in to nationalist politicians. They may not agree with them. They may not have believed at the start of the Good Friday Agreement that this was the best case, but I think when you look, even if people look in from the outside now, you know, you're close to a ball of pole. United Ireland is on the cards, like, like it, like an independent Scotland is. Now, what that Ireland looks like, you know, what does Declan McLaughlin, who's written about all this and sung about all this and sung about social issues, what yes. does he say to these kids from different communities now? Well, for one, it would be that we're probably, we're in a position that we have never, ever been in before, where we can plan, we can sit down now and say, what do we want on the island of Ireland? You know, if you want to be British, you can be British. The same way that somebody living in Spain who's from Britain can say that they're British or say whatever they want. But we need to look at the island as a whole and how we build it in a way that defends and supports everybody on the island. There's only six million people on this island. And if we can't resolve the fucking issues that we have now at the moment, there's, there's something bad. There's somebody there's other people pulling strings. You know, what I want what what I would say to the kind of to, to unionist working class people, you know, who are basically the same as myself is this is a chance for us to set right all of the fucking shit that has happened in the past and give our wings and give the future a chance you know, to be something that it's not. I think most people would be, you know, if they were told that the island was going to be there to look after them and that they had a stake in it, then I think, you know, most people would buy on it. I just hope that the working class Protestants, like you say, I think they have been, they've been sold a pup, you know, for the majority of the kind of Catholic nationalist population, you know, that idea of a United Ireland is on the cards is now something that, you know, it's inside of our kind of mental framework you know it's not like you know if it's going to happen it's when's it going to happen and how's it going to happen and i think the the unionist leadership have been they've been denying this you know they should be saying they working class protestants look this is the best deal that we're ever going to get this is if we want to negotiate we need to negotiate now because in another three or four years time we are not going to be in a position to negotiate anything we will be that small 
that, that we, we will just soldier on without them, you know. But I hope, like, I, I don't even think that will happen. I think that, I, I think we need to look at new ways of kind of social governance. You know, I think that, you know, just taking what the Brits have already done and replicating it, I don't think it works. You know, I think we just, we, to a certain extent, we have to non-colonize our social interactions, our politics. Uh, how that would happen, I think probably four provinces with a central government in Dublin. I think it's, it's all there to negotiate. You know, yeah, that's, that, 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 that's very interesting because I, I, I kind of thought there would be two, there would be, there would be Parliament in the nine counties maybe and then Parliament in Dublin until eventually they would... They would merge, you know, it would be transition period, like something like Hong Kong or something like that. Yeah. But look, it's all, I suppose, to play for for everybody. Now, in Derry, you are not a Celtic fan. You're not a Celtic match-going fan. But yeah, when Celtic fans came to Derry and when the, when the bands come over and that, yes. that's when you became aware that, um, and maybe you were aware before that, but was that when you became aware of that, you know, Shalik was much more than 11 men running around after a ball on a Saturday afternoon? Well, it kind of, to me, it would have started, like I say, I'd have been involved in you know, the, the organising of the Easter March and the Bloody Sunday March and you know, stuff that would have been happening throughout the year. And there would have been always meetings where you were bulleting people. So, like I say, at some point, probably 70% of the Glasgow Celtic supporters have slept on my, my loving room floor. <laughs> Because we used to bullet people all the time from bands, and then I get I, I got to know Gary Oak and a lot of the musicians and stuff like that, you know. So again, kind of growing up, Celtic wasn't really into, like there was other stuff going on you know, outside of football that we had to contend with. But it was only when the Celt when the, you know the uh, the supporters started coming over from Scotland that I realised that these people are all Celtic supporters. And then, like I say, I kind of I realised then the history behind it and the solidarity for not just for us. You know, for South Africa, for the Palestinians, for you know, Black Lives Matter, and I think that's that. It's that sense of community that has drawn me towards it. I know fucking nothing about football. I couldn't tell you whether the ball was stuffed or blew up. It's the people who are involved in it, and anywhere I go, that's what you know. I look for Celtic supporters clubs and a lot of the gigs that I would play, even across the states. You know, at Celtic supporters clubs because they'll have heard about me through other Celtic supporters. So I have, it's a great, I just, it's part of a community that I feel part of, you know, even though we don't know nothing about football. <laughs> but it's interesting you should say the States. I, I find the great sense, and it's kind of like the GAA over there, the Celtic Supporters Network, which includes, you know, a lot of Scottish people who, who left the islands and a yes. lot of Irish people. And then there's, you know, you've, you've, you've the token Yanks, like my big mate Rick, who lives in Detroit. You know, Rick, Rick was uh, in, the, in the American Navy or the American Army, and he was based in the noon. And he went to see Celtic and he fell in love with them. So there's so many different stories. And like all his kids now, nothing to do with Ireland or Scotland, are Celtic fans and they travel over to games, and which is which is a long journey from Detroit. But I, I find there's a whole sense of community, even between all the clubs. They help each other. Yes. They look out for each other. When you go to the convention in Las Vegas, and I know it's now just thousands of people, but you'll see the organisers of each club having their AGM and putting plans in place for getting games beamed in or fundraising or whatever you do. So I would imagine that like over there, that if you live in a town or a city that has a supporters club, you're kind of drawn to it because it's kind of an extension of your Irishness because as Hugo said last week on the podcast, you feel more Irish when you're actually living abroad than you do. Yes, uh, you're more conscious of it. As well as that too, it's because... 
the whole Celtic thing is there, there's a left wing, you know, there's a political element to it that you don't get with the AOH, that you don't get with a lot of those other kind of Irish organisations. You know, people who are part of a Celtic supporters club in Boston are there, you know, because they're Republicans, because they believe something bigger than just the, the, the football, the football thing. And I think that's, that's a big, that's a very important part of it. It has to be me anyway. Uh, like I say, I, one of the first times I was in New York, somebody says, look, we're going to Iraq. There's a Celtic match on in Rocky Sullivan's when Rockies was up in Lexington, <laughs> Lexington Avenue. And we went at like seven o'clock in the morning, <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> like the whole of New York was you know, people shuffling about going to work and you opened the door and looked on the Rockies and it was like looking at the hail. I was just, <laughs> 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 I was like, close the door again and stopped. And Rockies just, they'd be like that. And it was like, you know, hundreds of people jammed into a bar to watch a football match and no, no aggro, no, you know, it was all just good humoured people, you know, that, that wanted to be with one another and support their team and, you know, the, 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 and, and all that that meant, you know. So that always, like I said, has, has attracted me because I kind of think, right, but it's also a very working class thing as well. You know, you kind of get for your muggers, your football team, your politics, get drunk and have a good time, you know. So the Rockies used to be good in New York, now the Celtic supporters. I've, I've, I've had some great stories about different bars. I have a brother that lives in upstate um, New York and he he um, he often would go down to a bar, but the lad the lad that he would have been down to is... is I think he was deported, so he was illegal over there. So I don't think he goes down anymore. But he did. He 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 would have told me a couple of a couple of good stories about. Um, I think that was the Fenian boys. I think he used to go down. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Now listen, we mentioned we mentioned America. We mentioned Derry, but why why we're in America? Just take me back to gigging over there because Johnny Vaughan tells me that. You played in his pub one night and he said a lot of the people that turned up the Irish community were expecting a re-raw out of rule of And in his words, he says, <laughs> like he walked in with the band, he says, and they blew the fucking doors off the place. That's a gig I would have liked to be now. You know, uh, that, like that, that's when the whole tribe sings wasn't, we were kind of full swing. We had kind of mixed Irish folk music, ska, reggae, punk, Kind of guitar, you know, the the garage band. We had we had merged all these type of musics together, and you know, although we were singing again about kind of fairly you know heavy issues, we done it in a way that people could dance. Because to me, it was always you know, if you're playing music, you're there to entertain people, and you have to give people a you know, you can't. I'm not fucking Van Morrison, you know, where you can just stand and just you just do it. To me, it's about you have to interact with the audience. You have to fucking give them something. Uh, so I think we were very, very good at that. And what happened was we couldn't get fucking arrested here. Like we were, we were jamming the, the bars in Derry and Belfast that we were playing them. We were ramming them out the doors. People kind of got onto the sound that we we, we had, uh, but we couldn't record levels. Nobody would touch us. We couldn't get fucking like I say, we couldn't get arrested because of what we wear and where we came from. So Guinness were looking for a song. They were launching Heart Larger in America and they were looking for a song and they heard this we had a song called Happy and they wanted to use hits for the for the ad in the stitch. So we get paid a bit of money and we thought there's no fucking point in us being here. We had enough money to kind of get ourselves to America. 
So we went over there. We lived in Chapel Hill for a while, the kind of southern states. And then we moved to Bloomfield in Connecticut. And that was how I met Johnny Vaughan. Him and Daisy were working in a bar called uh, Half Door in Connecticut. And what people used to think was because we were Irish, that they were going to get diddly D stuff. And we were far from it. Not that we could play diddly D stuff and we used to drop it in and out of the songs and stuff. But uh, we weren't a diddly D band. We were a, we were a, a bar, ska, punk band, you know. So, But I we used to get a really good reaction because the kind of, I think the Irish community in America as well were looking for something, you know, that wasn't diddly D, that wasn't, you know, that we, we had merged all these other forms of music and kind of come up with our own form, a kind of, a, 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 you know, like a really good bar band that people could dance to, that you could jump up and down to, that you could believe in. Uh, so we went down really well, but what happened was we toured and toured. We were there for like three years, touring just up and down the A95. Uh, and we signed a record deal with a record label called Valley in New York. And then September 11th happened and the atmosphere really changed and the record industry began changing. And it was just at that point in time when the internet was taking over and record labels were closing. And so we kind of thought at that point we were tired. We were doing a lot, a lot of drinking. Uh, we decided to kind of knock it in the head. So the kind of band broke up and I stayed on for a while and then moved back to Derry again, and, but still kept performing and going back out. But the States, I loved it. Like we played, we played CBGB's a few times. We played the a, the nine thirty club in Washington. We played the Kennedy Center in Washington. We played like we played like all the kind of big venues up and down. CBGB's uh, that must been some buzz. Oh Jesus, that was that of of all the places that I have ever played. That that was that was after we played in CBGB's. I thought to myself, I can give up now and fucking die happy. You know, and the thing about it was we played there one night and we were on early in the build. We used to have like five, six bands on, you know. So we were on really early. And the guy who owned the place, he's seen us playing and he says, do you want to play tomorrow night? Uh, I'll give you a better slot. You can move, you know, I'll, I'll put you on second last. So we were doing nothing the next night. So he says, aye, okay, you know. So the next night we went down and there was, there was us, there was another, there was like a heavy metal band called... Oh, they're really big now at the minute. But there was them, and uh, they had to change around their slot because they were playing somewhere else. So they said, the other stuff, will you, can we swap? We'll go on second, just go on last. So he says, I know about it all. So we had been dairy fellas. We helped them on with their, helped them on with their gear and off their gear. And they were like, this is fucking incredible. Going, no other bands ever, you know, no, no, no other bands would ever help you around here, you know, just give us a hand. So they hang about, they hung about and watched this. So that was good to get playing CBGBs and the Kennedy Centre was really good as well so, so there's yeah. a whole pile of places that we played on and when I think of that CBGBs I think of Blondie and, yes. and, I, and I think of the, Ramon, and the Ramones that's the two that, that, that kind of stick out and just off track did the Undertones ever play though? I think they did I think they went out they went out and done a tour with a clash in the Stitch during the Late seventies, and I think they played. I think they played CBGBs. Oh, that would have been that. That would have been a good night. Uh, the class. I must check. I know, I know John. I must ask John has ever has he ever played it. Uh, but hey, talk about a dirty hole. Jesus Christ Almighty! It was never. It looked like somebody had fucking broken and tried to destroy the place. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just they stand on that stage, you know, wherever it were, like. You know what I mean? Everybody has played it. And uh, like every everywhere you go, there's, there's always an iconic music venue and sometimes they're closed. I used to go to a pub for festivals, for Scar Festival in London, called it Sir George Roby. It's 
closed now. It's a, it's a hotel. They knocked it down and built a hotel, I think, which is a shame because that was a brilliant gig. And then, but thankfully, Glasgow still has King Tuts and London still has the 100 Club. And I always make it my business when I go anywhere to go to these venues. And sometimes you go and, and the band is crap, like it's not what you're into. But if you can get a band that's half decent or a band you've never heard of. I remember going to see a band called Parker in um, King Tuts one night. And they were meant to be the next big thing and it was sold out, a Glasgow band. And a mate of mine was a music journalist at the time and he said, yeah, I'll get us on the guest list. And we went along and I bought the CD and I was I was playing it when I was gigging. I was telling everyone about this band. Six months later, I said to Mike, I said, Mike, what ever happened to that bag? He says, there was a row in the dressing room that night and the lead singer left. <laughs> and every, every record label was there to see them. As as a lot do in King Tuts, and the, he, he he flipped the lid that night. The lid, that was it. That was that was the end. But that happens in music. Yep. Um, yep. And where are we? Ah, yeah. So so the states, and then coming home to Derry, you're still playing music. You're doing a solo thing now, but a bit different than what you were you were doing. And then, as you said, you know, you're not relying on on gigging to be paid because you have a day job, and you walk, am I right in saying that you walk with um, street drinkers? Yes. I work in a place called the House in the Wales. It's, it's what's classed as a harm reduction unit, but what it really is, is a kind of residential unit for it's, you know, loving quarters for street drinkers. So that's we kind of become a long-term loving facility for people with alcohol and sometimes drug issues, you know. But I've done that kind of work on and off. It's, it's on the bog side, so I've always been kind of involved in community work and that was always, you know, uh, so that's what I do. It's a 25-bed unit. Uh, and what happens is the men are allowed to drink and the, they're allowed to drink on the project. There's an area set aside for them. So it means that they're not, not out sitting on the street. They have an alcohol agreement in which they get so much alcohol per hour. You know, maybe a can of beer, a can of cider. So it means then they can kind of maintain their drinking. And it means, like, if they're not getting, you know, hauled off to hospitals or arrested or, you know, like, I think Glasgow and Derry understand that we have an issue with alcohol, uh, I think more so than any other drug. And if we don't start dealing with it in some kind of positive way, it's, we're just going to continue to create more and more of it. That's what it does. Yeah, there's one on the way. when, when If you're walking over from um, the Gallagate in Glasgow, there's one. It's, it's the Belgrove Hotel. It's an old hotel and it's obviously... Yeah. Um, but it, it's kind of like, you know... It's, it's so sad, but it's funny because the lads are outside begging, and there's an off license right beside, you know. And it, it, like, it's it, it's like something out of still a game, like you know. And it's it's not funny, but you, you do smile when, when you see it when you give you give one of them a couple of quid, and you know you know where he's going, you know. I know there's characters involved in that, and us. But again, it's back to that issue of you know addiction is a serious you know mental health issue, and again, in kind of working class areas. It gets pushed out onto the streets, you know, and you know people are kind of ostracised because of it. And it's not, you know, we wouldn't treat people with cancer the same way. You know, people with addictions need to be helped. They need to be looked after. Sometimes they don't have the, the capabilities or the skills to look after themselves. And we do, as a society, do you have to kind of look after the weakest people that are there and the people who are sick and the people who need it. And I think it's important that we do. That's that's a reflection of the society in which we live in. And I think that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I love Derry is because people in Derry are very, very supportive. Like we would have virtually no people sleeping on the streets at night or, you know, like people are locked 
we, we kind of look after our own, not look after our own, but we kind of look out for people, which is a good thing. You know, I think people here are very socially conscious. Yeah, we, we, we have a dry um, homeless aid shelter. Um, but you can't go in if you have if you if you're drinking or on drugs. Yeah. But, uh, there's a lo- there's a local councillor, um, Joanna Bourne. She's been you know trying to get. There's, there's an old priest's house here. The, the the chapel is closed, and there's a big huge house beside it. And she's been trying to get turned into into a wet hostel because um, there is people drinking on the streets, and and we've we've had a couple of lads who've come in uh, over recent years. A uh, couple of uh, maybe East European lads. Um, I think they possibly could be from there. And one of them was a was a lovely uh, man, and he was fed. A local shop used to feed him. Joe looked after him. But I walked my dog early every morning, and I would meet him most mornings because he'd be up. He'd be up early. I don't know. He was sleeping in a derelict house, and um, he would always stop and ask could he rub the dog. And his, his English was broken, and but a nice guy. Obviously, he had nowhere to to wash properly, but. He died there a couple of months ago, and and we there was a fair play to the people in the town. There was a there was a GoFundMe to get him, you know, repatriated and um, a few quid for, for his family and that. But the lovely, like, the, I, this is a lovely thing. This man would, you know, people. He was a big, big, you know, strong guy, and people would probably be afraid of him if they seen him. But he was the most gentlest with me. I have a big dog, and he was so gentle with him. And uh, wouldn't it be great if he would have had a, a place? to go because I think Joe was the only one looking after him in the shop he probably done a few things to Joe around the yard or whatever but maybe he wouldn't be dead if, if he had somewhere to go and as like you say they're, they're given a can an hour or whatever it's controlled drinking so they're not out in the streets and these cold nights or even warm nights but you know if it's, if it's raining they could be lying somewhere damper so it's yeah. it, it's kind of sad and I know th- I know there's resentment to it in my hometown because people don't understand and maybe if they you know if they went up and had a look maybe at you know where the one in Derry where there's no one sleeping on the streets and maybe the likes of yourself could talk to them because I think you know it's education isn't it it's just making people yes. aware that there is a better it's great the way you spoke about um, the, the mental illness problems that goes with addiction because yes. I think people just go and go oh, he's a piss head or he's a scourge yeah. or he's this or he had a job and, he, and they'll look at him you know uh, and nobody, nobody ever wants to be. Nobody wants to be in that position where you're, you know, like, like I say, I work along with people with severe addictions, and it has destroyed their lives. And if you want people to get better, or if you don't want them to be a drain, you know, if, I know what you're saying is people have this kind of argument: oh, they're a drain in society, or look at them clogging up the city centre and things. The first thing that you need to do, if you want those people not to be in that position, is help them to get their dignity back. And the way that you do that is you treat them like human beings. You give them the same rights as everybody else. Now, they will they may fall down, they may continue to fall down, but some of them will get better. Some of them will address the issues that need addressed and will get help with their their mental health issues. If if we can't, as a people, you know, make sure that people have a roof over their head and you know the basics that that should be afforded to every human being, you know, a, a roof over your head, somewhere to clean yourself, food and warmth. If we can't give that to everybody, there's something badly wrong. And see anybody that denies that to another human being, you're fucked up. You know, if you can't see that there's issues that need addressing, you know, we can't just keep closing our eyes to it because at some point it will come to your door. Like, see for everybody that has an addiction, there is seven people 
on average, there's seven people who are directly affected by it. You know, maybe friends, family, their work, but somebody else has been, and that has, you know, that impact upon society, especially somewhere where we have such a fucking issue where alcohol addiction is massive. You know, can you imagine the amount of money, you know, like, what is 93% of the people in prisons are there because of crimes that were committed because of alcohol? You know, there's something badly wrong in society if we can't look after people and we just continue to criminalize people because of an addiction. It's, it's something that it, it makes me angry because I see it on a daily basis where people are being treated less than human. And it's so ugly to see, you know, a society where we're supposed to be civilized and people are treated so, ba- so badly. Now, and I know we're a lot better at it here in Derry than a lot of other places. But it shouldn't go on anywhere. You know what I mean? There should be facilities for people who can't manage, people who find themselves, you know, like all of us are only two or three paychecks away from the street, realistically. So we shouldn't, you know, we need to, we need to realize or we need to figure out how we look after these issues and sort people out here and, and those kind of predicaments. Well said, Daxon. Well said. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, Sorry, there's, there's, I know, but like this podcast is about football, music, culture, social issues, yeah. politics. You know, there's no there's no limits to this podcast. Um, yes, yes, yes. You know, like we we'd, we'd all get very bored if we if we spent all our life talking about who scored that goal or who didn't score that goal. You know, so yeah, and and it's it's it. You know, hopefully, if someone's listening to this, it might change their opinion. If it changes mm. one person, well, opinion, yeah, it's recording. You know, a lot of my music comes out of that environment. You know what I mean? I'm saying I sing about people getting out of prison or people going under prison. I sing about drugs. I sing about prostitution. The kind of stuff that I see around me. And I try to give it, I try to put a human fist to it so that it's not just somebody else. You know, this is somebody's mother. It's somebody's father. It's somebody's daughter who has been caught in a position. Like, you know, people who are involved in the sex industry, you can be fucking guaranteed that if they could have a job as a secretary or they could be working on a supermarket or they could be, you know, earning a group, they would be doing that. You know, it's because of the circumstances that they find themselves in, whether it be through addiction, whether it be, you know, mental health issues or homelessness, people are put on a position where they have to fucking do stuff that society, we push them further and further and further away from it instead of trying to help them. Yeah, and, and when you think back to uh, Shame Again song, The Pogues, The Old Man Drag, Yes, I mean, you think about what Shane went through himself and the experience yes. he went through. Should they queue up to shake Shane's hand now? But they wouldn't have when he was a teenager growing up in London, no. down in no. Soho. Oh, they would have gladly sent him to the fucking gallows. Yes, gladly sent him to the gallows. The same way that they would do. And this is one, you know, if, you know, people spend that much time. We're looking down the ways at the people who are further down the ladder from us when we should be looking up the ways. You know, it's the people who are above us telling us that it's the people below us, that it's their fault. It's not their fucking fault. It's the people who we give the power to make the decisions that are supposed to, you know, these people are well paid. They take our tax. They fucking, you know, we love law and orderly lives so that these people are supposed to govern and run the the state. And they're not doing it. They're fucking filling their pockets full of money. And the more power they get, the more irresponsible they become with that power. Money corrupts. Money corrupts. Listen, Declan, before we finish up, I have... um I have a Celtic Soul time machine. Now, yes. a lot of people that have climbed in there have gone back to football games. A lot have gone back to gigs. Some have gone back to a few other bits and pieces. If I can take Declan back in my Celtic Soul machine to a moment in that musical career, will you take us back? But will you also take us back to um, a time 
in Derry that you realised that things were changing? Uh, I can remember this probably maybe about 15 years ago, coming walking through the bog and hearing kids playing and talking to, and talking to one another in Irish was a big thing for me because I've seen kids, you know, conversing on the media, the medium of uh, you know Irish was was a big thing for me because uh, it was one of those, you know, we kind of promote the Irish language and we want the you know we want our kids to learn it. But this was the first time. Now I see it all the time now, but the first time I witnessed, I kind of thought, ah, there's a sea change. You know, our kids are now talking the language of their fucking their their ancestors. Was one uh, other things that I've. I just think the change here has kind of been not slow, but it has just kind of prodded along. I remember somebody who was involved with the South African stuff saying, you know, for for the powerless, change doesn't happen fast enough. For the powerful, it happens too fast. And it's how you get that change to happen in a way that keeps everybody on side. Now, to me, the fucking, I don't give two monkeys about the powerful, but I think there needs to be change to keep working class people you know, we need to feel that we have that we're moving forward. I sometimes wonder if that's the case when I see people's, you know, like how the working classes in Britain are voting for the Tory party. I just can't, I can't get my head around it at all. Uh, but if I could go back in time, to something that I don't know. I would probably try to look forward. I spend a lot of my time kind of thinking about what I'm doing next or where I'm going. Uh, I would rather think further down the line, probably to a point where, you know, we're negotiating what the new Ireland is going to be, that we're, you know, on the whole island of Ireland, you know, what's it going to mean for people in Cork? What's it going to mean for people in Coleraine? You know, and I think of the working classes here and then in the six counties who are fairly politicised, you know, if we could kind of negotiate something that, you know, that people can be Irish, that they can be British, but you know the island of Ireland has to move forward as one. So I, th- I kind of think that's that's where I would like to be. I want to be part of that discussion. Right, and listen, just stay in that time machine, okay? Because I do want you to go back. I know you're looking forward. I want you to go back, yeah. and you've got your guitar, or maybe you have your band. Which, if you go back to one of them gigs that you played, and one song that you played anywhere in Derry or America, or you know, because we all we all have moments in our life where we go, wasn't that just magnificent? What would it be? Uh, where would it be? Where would that gig be? We done the Millennium here in Derry, which to me was probably the the best, not the best gig that we ever did, but the fact that we were headlining here in our home city for the Millennium was that was a that was a that was a high point for us. Uh, and then where else we? Like we were a good time band, you know. People used to come to see us because we, you know, it was you could dance, you could drink, we could, you know. Uh, and at that point in time, when we were kind of on the crest of that wave, there was no, you know, it was it was that point between the kind of war and the ceasefires had come on, and the police weren't accepted. Time, you know, so there was there was no law and order, so you know, bars could stay open, we could party, we could, you know, there was. Uh, as a community, we were looking after ourselves. So there was at, at that point in time, I think Derry, you know, that's ninety-four up to two thousand and two, probably was a great period of time. Did there was it, a lot of creativity about then as well, you know. There was a lot of great bands in Derry. Did Luke Kelly play in, in the Bogside uh, during, yes, during the siege of the Bogside? No, they, uh, they had a they had the fly 
here and they had the Free Dairy Fla in 1969 and Luke Kelly come up, the Clancy brothers come up uh, and there was a big festival here, which is, they have kept it going. They, they still have it every year. That's now the Gas Yard Wall Fela. Sounds amazing. Um, yes. That, you know, in, in all that, in all the chaos, you know, to the hill, the late great Luke Kelly perform and the Clancy brothers in, in your hometown and in your home area, you know, for, for those lucky enough to be at that, it must have been so surreal because what was going on around them. Yes, yes. Well, Declan, it's been absolutely brilliant to get into your Celtic soul and to hear about Derry City uh, that you obviously love. But we're looking forward to seeing them alive. We're looking for hopefully you'll come to Drada and maybe Dublin. And the last time you were in Glasgow, I missed you. You played on the Thursday night and I didn't roll into the Friday morning. That's right. But hopefully we'll catch it because I know Hilly and Bill Coyley and a few of the boys have been, they've been kind of bumming up your, your album. So, um, and they're new fans. So I know they're looking forward to seeing you. And would there be right. any, any, any chance of getting this band back together? Because, you know, when we come out of COVID, we'd be looking for something. We'd be looking for something. We lost a year of our lives. Uh, well, one of the guys lives in America. We're scattered all over the place. Uh, and everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Now, there's, there's chat. Well, we'll see what happens. Never say yeah. never. Never say never. <laughs> <laughs> if there's the right amount of drugs and money, anything is possible. <laughs> so, so, very rock and roll. Okay, Doug, I'm just going to finish it with that. And, and listen, thanks a million. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, Thank you. It's been it's been so uh, insightful just to get inside Derry. Really, I think you've brought the listeners into into Derry, and I think you might get a few more tourists now coming up after after here. Oh, please come, come honestly, God, because uh, like. I have, I've done, I've played all over the world. Like my music has given me the chance to kind of go everywhere. Like I've played in Libya, in France, North and South Africa, Australia, all over the States. And one of the things I have found is the people in Derry, the sense of community and their camaraderie and the way that they welcome people in. Like I went down there, there's a wee bar here called the Celtic Bar. And you've probably been in it. Uh, and I went in there the other night for a pint. And there was a guy who wandered in from Belfast just was looking for somewhere and could he, he went looking for the bog side in and must have ended up in the Celtic. I was leaving it fucking must have been quarter past twelve. And the wee guy was blitzed. He fell in with a pile of people who he hadn't a clue who they were. They didn't know who he was, but all of a sudden they were all the best of friends. And that's the type of people that love going here. You know, they look out for people they want they want to welcome people on it. So come, come visit us. You're, you're an ambassador for the for the city. <laughs> Thank you, Declan. Thank you very much for having me. And sure, look, and I'll get you these the, the, the tracks for the new album sent out by this weekend. Brilliant. I was lovely to talk to Declan. I always wanted to get him on the podcast, and he's been he's been a bit elusive, but it was great to get him on because we've had no problem getting a, some tracks from him for the podcast, and we've always had a great reaction to be to when he played us out of the show so I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did very very uh, interesting and a couple of names dropped there during as well Damien Dempsey Christy Moore The Undertones and the famous punk club The CBGBs Folks I'm not going to bore you with all the details but we do not put anything behind a paywall or a Patreon so if you'd like to support us please visit satellitfanzine.com where you can become a member subscribe buy or donate for the price of a point and 
if you donate this week, I will definitely enjoy the points because I couldn't for the last year or so. Only joking, folks. Thank you so much for your support. And if you can keep supporting us, we'd really appreciate that because, as I said, most of the content, with the exception of the fanzine, is free. Free for all to read, free for all to listen, and free for all to watch. Although, my mum always told me I have a face for radio. And as always, I have to thank the Bertie boy himself, 40 years old, Ronan McQuillan, for producing the show. And he also sang us out a few times during the year. And I tell you one thing, I'm looking forward to getting back in the pub and seeing Ronan doing a few gigs. And sure, I can't. I thanked everybody, I think, but just make sure. Daniel Faulkner, thank you so much for all the work this week on Celtic Fanzine TV. We put out quite a lot of content and I know it was annoying you at different times in the day and night. So thank you. Okay, folks, just a quick recap. Download the app. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Follow us for the podcast or hit the subscribe button depending on the platform you're on. And please hit that subscribe button on the YouTube channel. And if you're a business or Celtic Supporters Club and you would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast or become a sponsor across any of the platforms, please email us at info at And as always, you can contact us through the website or message us on all those social media channels. So, folks, enjoy that weekend. I cannot wait. I hope the weather keeps up. I'm looking out the window here and it is sunshine all the way. I have a little session with Daniel, YouTube man, on Sunday. He's celebrating his lovely girlfriend's 40th birthday. And Ronan will be celebrating with his lovely wife for his 40th birthday. But on Monday, I think we'll all be meeting up because, guess what? You probably heard me over the last few months, but the pubs are back open. So Tip McCann, if you can do it in Yuri, we can do it down here. So that's all I say, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, keep the faith. And I am really, really looking forward to getting to see Declan McLaughlin in the flesh and sit down and enjoy one of his gigs. But in the meantime, shall we have to play out with Declan? See you in a couple of weeks.
the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.